So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to read verse 7 and 11 through 13. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me read that again, Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what is what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all the things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 12. We're going to start in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another uh, various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Jumping down to verse uh, 28, and God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, plural, plural, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire 
the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. Amen. So there's some uh, scriptures that we will be discussing as we get into this. Today we are finally at chapter 6 out of 6 parts in the Grace Upon Grace series. Uh, I am debating changing the name of the series to Grace Plus Grace series. And that'll probably happen. But in any case, uh, the theme verse has been John 1, 16 and 17. And we're just emphasizing that the modern idea that, that, that this verse puts Christ over and against Moses is completely unwarranted by the actual wording of the Greek. It's that grace came through Moses and grace was further realized through Jesus Christ. Uh, Moses brought grace to the people of God, yet Jesus brought, brought fuller grace to the people of God. And so uh, we the six titles we've looked at are in section two there. They fall into two categories. Uh, section one, that is uh, the first three three chapters of this series, were, were called Grace Reexamined. And we're going to talk a little bit about that word reexamined today. Uh, secondly, we talked about grace delivered. And the metaphor we're using is that when you turn on the faucet of your house, uh, water comes out, hopefully, <laughs> if you've paid the water bill, and uh, all the pipes are connected, right? And that's the point. The if, if there is a there is a delivery system to that water, and it can break down anywhere. But if it doesn't break down, it'll uh, provide to you nice, flowing, fresh, maybe somewhat clean. Hopefully, you have a water purifier system in your home. Uh, water. So uh, uh, there's a delivery system, and grace is delivered to us as Christians. It's a free gift, but there's some assembly required. There, you have to unwrap the free gift. You have to go to the banquet uh, that after the banquet, the gifts are distributed. At a wedding, uh, what would we think of a, of a couple that opened their gifts before, uh, before they had the banquet? At, at, uh, hopefully your tradition is in your family. It, uh, you know, we have our, our gifts Christmas Eve as a family. And first, we have a Christian fellowship service of worship in the Word. Uh, some usually Jason teaches or something like this, and uh, we might sing a few songs. And we have a we have a celebration service with our with our Christian brothers in Grace Christian Fellowship. Then we have a banquet, uh, and then we don't just enjoy our gifts; we pass them out and un and unwrap them, and uh, so forth. And so so it is with God's grace. Philippians 2 is one of the great verses on this when it says that um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you just took that phrase out of context, that would sound like a performance-based approach to, to salvation, right? Uh, we, If you remember uh, week two of this series, chapter two of this series, we looked at grace plus theologies. And uh, you know, sometimes people approach grace as if it's works that leads to favor or grace. Or some people start by grace and then grow, think they can grow by works. That's the most common one in the church today. Second one, most common is grace plus licentiousness. Because I have grace, I can just do whatever the hell I want <laughs> uh, kind of mentality, which is very deep in our culture. Uh, yeah, you know, I murdered a guy again. I'm, I've stayed in my addiction. What well, you know, I've 
no saint, no progression in sanctification or maturation. That is not a true understanding of grace. So, um, with you know, with that, we looked at uh, kind of grace plus theologies, and grace plus grace equals uh, not only salvation but sanctification and maturation. We need to grow in grace. It's a relational word. Uh, it, it's in Jesus Christ himself. Grace, as our theme verse says, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ as we relate to Jesus. But the Jesus has three primary vehicles through which we can relate to him. The word of God, the word of his grace, both the living and the written word of God. Jesus himself is the living word of God that we experience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this Bible is the written word of God. And as we're going to see today, God has given grace gifts to the church, including teachers who help us understand this word of God. Uh, also, the grace comes from the Holy Spirit, the spirit of his grace. And today we're going to examine grace being delivered through the church of his grace. Now, these three are inextricably intertwined. Now, you all know I like that phrase. However, it's not it, it couldn't be more appropriate than to say you never get the word apart from the church. The word came through the church. The apostles and the, and the disciples of the apostles wrote our, our New Testament. And the early churches bore witness that it was scripture and preserved them. When they finally uh, made an official canon list at the Second Council of Nicaea, they were only recognizing what the churches had agreed to and believed in since the first century. They weren't doing anything new. One of the great things in true Christian theology is we're never after something new. People want, in, you know, they always want to hear a new message, something they've never heard before, something creative. Uh, pastors are under pressure to do this. I want to teach you things old. I want to uh, teach you things established in all eternity and through the word of God and understood by the church since the early centuries. Nothing too uh, creative here. Now, um, so let's get into it. Uh, move to Roman numeral five on your, on your, on your uh, outline, and we're going to look at grace delivered today. Now, I am going to start by reading two verses, one of which we read at the beginning. Uh, so maybe I'll just comment on that one. But the first one is Matthew 16, 18. Now, this is a very, very, very important verse because it's the first time Jesus uses the word church. And he is explaining that he is going to create a church. And we're going to hopefully open our eyes to some things that we have missed about that verse. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, uh, we most of the time that you hear discussion and commentary about this verse, this is a verse that has been debated for centuries in the church. It was one of the major verses debated during the time of the Reformation and the, and the time leading up the Brethren of the Common Life, who Erasmus and Luther and others were influ influenced by. Uh, it was a verse with, that was debated much. But all the debate focused on the words, you are Petros, Peter, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. 
And so some people want to say that that Peter is the foundation or the rock. Uh, a true interpretation is is uh, more likely that you are a bed uh, you are a small stone Petras, and upon this rock Petra, and the rock was the revelation that he spoke in the verse preceding. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and that revelation is what gives you entrance into Christ's church. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my heavenly Father revealed it to you. How? By the Holy Spirit. And it's those who are born of the Spirit of God who understand that our Lord is the bedrock, that he is the Son of the living God. He is Messiah. He is Adonai. He is the Lord with us. He is everything the prophets look forward to. He's the sum of all the prophets, and he's the fulfillment of the law. He's our all in all. All things are upheld by the word of his power. It's that revelation that births us into the family of God called the church. And it's upon that revelation that the church is built. Now, I want, though, to look at something that you, that I've never heard discussed, but is equally important the phrase i will build my church which in greek is oikodomeo mu ecclesia now all most all of us know what the bigger words oikodomeo and ecclesia mean oikodomeo we talk a lot about in our teachings concerning the baptism in the spirit because paul says the one who speaks in an unknown tongue oikodomeo builds his spirit up it means to build up your house. Demeo is the word we get domestic from. Oikos is the, is the root word of economics. And it means to build up your, and economics is a study of, of, of what money is built upon. And it means to build up your house. So Jesus is saying with the, with the ending omega, meaning which is the first case possessive in Greek, he's saying, I will build. Now that's very important because uh, we do ask everyone to work very hard for this church. Everyone worked very hard yesterday and we plant and we water, but it's God that causes the growth. Jesus, it was his, the church was his idea in the first place. He gave birth to it and he sustains it and he brings it forth and brings uh, the Revelation 12 vision is, is of a woman bringing forth a male child whose destiny is to rule the nation. The, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, brings every new generation of the church that fulfills God's purpose in its age. It's Jesus that builds his church. This is one of the reasons why we've lost so much since the fundamentalist modernist controversy uh, put into the evangelical fundamental world a anti-history view of things. Because we need to know, Jesus has always been, there's this idea, you hear this a lot, some people say, well, the first century church was quite good, and then, and then there's us restoring this. <laughs> That's so prideful, I don't even want to deal with that. But many will say, well, the first five or so centuries, or maybe the first seven or eight centuries through the first seven ecumenical councils, but it was all downhill from there until the Reformation. That is nonsense. Jesus said, I will build my church, and he, just like in Israel, there's a remnant uh, there's people who are being touched by God, who have insights, 
who have uh, miracles, healings. There's, there's never been a time where God is not present and active in, in uh, some of his visible church. Now, there is a theological concept called the invisible church and the visible church, and the invisible church are all those who really have had the same revelation as Peter, thou art the Christ. And not everyone who goes to a church and not every church that has a sign on it that calls itself Christian is composed 100% of people who are in that invisible church. So the visible church is, is always has wheats and tares. And as uh, members of a, of a body of Christians, we hope to, work, to love each other and teach each other and disciple each other so that God can remove more and more of the tares from our midst. But there's always, there's always wheat and tares. Uh, Jesus is saying here, I will build now the, the ecclesia. And a lot of you know that word as well because the word church comes from ecclesia, uh, etymologically speaking. And uh, so Jesus, but the word mu, a lot of you may not know. And it's, uh, it's the word we get a me from, uh, me and my, and uh, both come from mu. Etymologically speaking, again, descended from the Greek word mu, or the English words me and my. And what Jesus is saying here is this is a point of emphasis. You have, he's saying, I will build, if you see, I have it in large, bold print, italicized, my church. Now this, uh, believe me, is a revelation that many uh, uh, uh church and many a leadership team and many a pastor has had to learn the hard way. It's Jesus' church. They're his sheep. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not our church. I almost wish we could eliminate from our, we, we say, I'd like to invite you to our church. Well, it's not our church. It's his church. He owns it. He birthed it, he guards it, he protects it, he disciplines it and sanctifies it. Now, mu in here is a possessive pronoun. And whenever you see that, what it means in Greece is it's done for force or it's done for the force of antithesis to be the opposite of. Now, if you, if you step back and look at the whole gospel of Matthew, you'll understand the force of this word because the gospel of Matthew was written by Levi God always uses our weakest areas to become his strongest areas. Of the 12 disciples, Levi was the biggest traitor to the Jews of all, any of the 12 disciples. He was a tax collector. He was, you know, like if it was on our, uh, he was like a guy who was the vice president of the business that had embezzled several hundred thousand out of the business over the years and bad-mouthed it. Uh, whenever he had a chance, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I don't know what analogy to use. He was Benedict Arnold, if you know American history. Uh, he was Judas. And God redeemed him, and God used him to write the greatest love letter that's ever been written to the Israel people, to the Jewish people, to say, you missed your Messiah. I spent 2,000 years in 39 books of scriptures giving you signposts and that when he stood in your very midst, you had paradigms of understanding about scripture that were so off base that they blinded you to God himself standing in your midst. 
very appropriate for the church of our day. Very similar thing happening to the, to the church in our day. So in that context, Jesus is standing as the greatest and last of all the prophets. He's not create, saying something new, but he's standing on the foundation of Elijah and Amos and Hosea and so forth. And he's saying uh, he's come to, uh, to be the final climax, the final episode, the final uh, chapter in a long line of prophets. And that's why he says when in his confrontations with the Pharisees, he talks about a father had uh, planted a vineyard and he rented it out to vine growers and that when it came time to collect the produce, he sent his uh, servants and they built, they stoned one and shunned another and they wouldn't receive his servants nor give the father his share of the produce. That's a parable of Israel's whole history. This is why what John's been teaching us about a historically informed gospel is so important because it, without that, we have, we have the four spiritual laws nonsense, which is just, just ripped, ripping the Bible out of its meaning and giving it an alternate meaning and missing the whole point. And so the, you know, the, vine, the, the, vine, the father says, I, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Certainly they'll respect my son. But when they saw the son, they were jealous. Remember how often it says the Pharisees were jealous of the crowds that were following Jesus? They were jealous. Religion had become all about the praises of men in a financial uh, position, you know, financial security and, and social status. And, and uh, the, the very son of God was in their midst and they said, we, let's kill him so we can keep the vineyard for ourselves. Now that's in Matthew, is because Matthew has one theme. It's a covenant lawsuit against Israel saying you have killed and stoned the prophets. And I'm sending you my final prophet, the son, knowing you're going to kill him. And the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Now, if you understand that, you'll understand in Matthew 23, when Jesus, uh, after two chapters of woe are you, he has seven or is it eight woes against the Pharisees, and then he comes to Jerusalem. And some of the most sacred of portions of scripture there ever was. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother gathers her hens, but you would not have it. And then he says something very important. Remember two chapters earlier, he had cleansed the temple and he had said, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations at the beginning of his great confrontation that will last for three chapters with the Pharisees. But now he says, he says, behold, your house is left to you desolate, which is the word used in the Septuagint for the word Ichabod. Remember when Eli's sons were, were worthless sons 
and sons of Belial and so forth, and the Canaanites, or the Philistines came and, and conquered them in battle and took the ark of God, and Eli died saying, the glory of God has departed from Israel. Jesus is saying, this is no longer my house. It's, your, it's just a building now, and the Shekinah glory will not dwell here anymore. It will dwell in my church. That's what he's saying in Matthew 16. I will build my church in contradistinction to the one God used Moses to build because he's taken it away from them and he's going to give it to a new people. A, a people that if they bear the fruit of the kingdom, it will continue with them. But if they do not bear the fruit of the kingdom, he will always take it away from those who are missing the point and given it, give it to a nation producing the fruit of it. Sometimes that's generations in happening. Blessed are the people who can see it in the first generation of a movement that God is doing. So after that, the very next line, get, pull the chapters out of your Bible, somewhere, black them out or something, so you can just keep reading and get it. You know, you'll get a lot of insights if you don't stop at the chapter breaks. And after he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and your house is left to you desolate, the disciples say, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? Now, they're not asking about the second coming of Christ. They're asking about when are you coming to judge Israel in this way? And the whole evangelical third church thinks that Matthew 24, which is called the Olivet Discourse, has to do with the end times, and therefore they, they miss, that's the key to understanding the whole New Testament. That's why I beg you to read books like Paradise Restored and An Eschatology of Victory by J. Marcellus Kick. That's why they're at the top of the list, because they'll help you see most of the admonitions of the New Testament, as John brought out when he was teaching us on Acts the, 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 the Judaizers and the people who were under the judgment of God, who God was taking the kingdom of, they became the strongest persecutors of the church, just as all Israel always persecuted the prophets. Jeremiah and, was not a popular dude. You don't get thrown in a hole and left in the, and stuff like that if you're really popular. He didn't have a big church. You know, we have become so Americanized in this bigger is better and mass marketing and so forth. We think that if something doesn't have thousands of people saying amen and that, that it can't be legit. But it's never that way in the Bible. The most legit things Jesus had after he fed the multitudes, cast out demons out of many, healed the sick, appeared to 500 people after his resurrection, only 120 of those people believed in him enough to actually do what he asked them to do. So Jesus says, he, uh, he says, do you see these stones? One stone will not be left on another. For the time will come when armies will surround Jerusalem and tear it all down and uh, he puts a time context on it. He says, this generation will not pass away till all this is fulfilled. 
and a generation is 40 years. Now, if you were living, we all think that we'd be followers of Jesus and, and so forth if we were living in his time, but the truth of it is, is 98, 99% of the Jewish people misunderstood People who know their Bibles far better than anyone in this room missed it completely because they had false motivations, because they had legalism instead of grace and all sorts of reasons. They were blind. Now, that's a long introduction to just say, this is, this is the context of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16. He's saying, I will build my church. In contradistinction to the church that Moses built, I'm going to call out the Greek word ecclesia means a called out assembly. It was actually used in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint of the called out assembly of God's people. God has call, is always calling the people out of the world to assemble under his government. He's always had, like in Israel, there were cities, tribes, and they didn't, or God's intention wasn't for them to have a, a, a king in one nation. He wanted them to have a federalism, to have many, many tribes and so forth, all under the law of God and the spirit of God and the word of God. And the, the basic unit of government was supposed to be the elders of the city. And that's actually the model for the New Testament church. There's supposed to be uh, a, a family or community of people who've been called out of this world that have been called into that revelation, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, who are supposed to live a Christian way of life in community, submitted to the lordship of Christ by the Holy Spirit through the government he raises up, which is first and foremost elders and deacons. And there's supposed to be a plurality of elders and elders aren't supposed to be like they've become in modern times a governmental business board. They're supposed to be the pastors and teachers. And there's not supposed to be one guy. You know, it's one of the reasons why the, the Lord has led us. Not only has our eldership confirmed this, but our extended leadership team that I just teach a Sunday school class on Sunday morning. As good as this stuff is. This is life or death stuff for you to know. This is stuff 95% of Christians don't know sometimes. Nevertheless, the stuff John is teaching is even more important for us to hear because that's the gift God gave him. See, we're used to like one guy being the charismatic uh, head that, of the, that, you know, that's, that's American marketing. That's a cult called the cult of celebrity. And what it does is it says, okay, well, we have one spiritual guy and we all live our life vicariously through. You know what? When there's a plurality, you know what it says? You can live life there too. And in fact, God's requiring you to do so. God's requiring you to be a disciple full of the spirit, full of knowledge and wisdom, productive in your job, uh, a great husband, a great father. And, all, and you're called to be all of the above. And there's grace to be obedient to God in all the areas of your life. So moving on in Ephesians 4, it's uh, verse 7. Understand that the stuff in verse uh, 9 and 10 is kind of a parenthetical statement as it's shown in most of your Bible. 
But it, what Christ, he's talking about Christ in his resurrection, and he says grace was given. And then he goes on to say he gave. And so that verse 11 tells us what he, the grace that was given. And the Greek word there is didomai, and it means to grant or to supply necessary things. In other words, it's always used of things that you got to have. We would consider it child abuse if a parent didn't give his kids, you know, clothing, shelter, and food, right? This is what this Greek word is saying is these are the things that the church has to have. It cannot exist. It, it, it cannot have life in it without the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, shepherds, and teachers. That's when I, why one of the things you're going to see is you're going to receive a movement to the restore with the, with the sevenfold ministry and uh, in, in to change, frankly, the whole denominational models of, of how they rate, how leadership is raised up to more of a New Testament model of how leadership is raised up as part of the whole overall package of God restoring his church. And the, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, they are to equip the saints. Remember what grace is? Grace is empowerment to do the will of God, to glorify God. You know what we saw, We saw, frankly, this week is we saw a bunch of different people that were equipped to do their thing. You know, all kinds of people were doing all kinds of important things yesterday uh, in in. And uh, it was amazing. You know, we served somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people in less than three hours uh, in all sorts of ways. And many of them got encouraged in the Lord and so forth as well. So now let's move on uh, and understand. what we're, One of the things, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at the church. And I need to kind of... Uh, I, can, I need to kind of open our eyes at the beginning to something that is a very, very, very important part of uh, the Christianity that's emerged in the last 150 years, and that's an a la carte approach to, to the church. Uh, all of you know what an a la carte line is. When I was a kid, uh, they had it. So you, you, whatever the government lunch was that day, it was, I believe it was like 25 cents. And by the time I was in high school, it was up to 50 cents. And uh, let's not talk about the Federal Reserve Bank and inflation or anything. But in any case, you mandatorily had to buy what they were serving. If Thursdays was pizza burgers, you had pizza burgers, whether you like them or not. And uh, by the time I got to high school, they had this other, they had two lines, uh, well, the four totally, but the two were serving the, the state mandated lunch and the other was a la carte. And of course you could get ice cream sandwiches and peanut butter and jelly and all kinds of stuff that was bad for you. And of course I was not a Christian and I ate in the a la carte line. Well, this is the approach that almost everyone, almost everyone is taking to the church in our day. We have become so excessively individualistic that we think about our goals in Christ. I have my vocational goals under Christ. I have my marital goals. I, you know, I want God to have a man for my plan and uh, under Christ. And I, you know, I have all these things under Christ, so, so under Christ in quotes, because Christ is in and through his church. We think we, it's me alone with the word and the spirit. It's never that in the Bible. 
You alone, the priesthood of believers requires you to know the word and know the spirit of God, but God never leaves you to find your own way in important decisions. And until you learn how to seek and attain godly counsel all the time, you will make mistake after mistake after mistake vocationally, financially, maritally, and in every other kind of sphere of your life. And your life will be a tragedy apart from, because God never intended you to go it alone. Now, Paul says this to the Corinthians. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. The Greek word there is sumpheo, that you're a symphony. You're not making the same sound, but you're making sounds that blend and harmonize together. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete or mature, is the Greek word for integer, in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Cholos people, those Cholos people are always gossiping about Corinthians, that there are quarrels among you. Imagine that, and, and Paul is saying this like, there's quarrels among you? What would he say to the church of our day? And he says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ. Now, take this thought through chapter three and you'll see that he says, I can't give you solid food or mature food. I can only teach you milk because you have these divisions now this these this the spirit of what he's talking about here was the beginning of denominationalism because what happened in the ancient world was everyone believed in discipleship and everyone had a mentor spiritual fathers disciplers not just the christians or the jews that was the nature of the ancient world but it became a point of pride who your who your mentor was. So somewhere I'm of Plato and I'm of Socrates, Bill and Ted, Socrates. I'm of Aristotle. Uh, but even in the Jewish camp, you know, Paul, when he lists his credentials, he was saying, now he's renouncing having this attitude, but he was saying, I had this attitude that I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm from Gamaliel. In other words, I was discipled by the greatest of the disciplers of my time. <laughs> That's what Paul, that was where Paul was at before Christ apprehended him. And it's wicked. And these guys are saying, I'm of different emphasis. Paul is called the apostle of grace, and he's called the apostle of the Holy Spirit. He teaches the most about those two subjects of anyone in the New Testament. And these were the charismatic brothers. We speak in tongues and we're, we're all about declarations and manifestations and gifts of the spirit and, and healing. Now, Paul's not saying that's not important, but he's saying to hold that emphasis over and against other emphasis that are in God's word is wrong. And the people who are saying, I'm of Apollos, Apollos was eloquent in the scriptures. And these are the people that are saying, man, we study reformed theology. We know the Greek and we, you know, read a book every day. And, uh, and you know, there are churches like that. Some people jokingly will call certain types of Presbyterianism uh, the frozen chosen, where, where even the janitors know, are, have no more Bible and theology than, than most leaders of, of other kinds of churches. It's true. 
but they're not about to let the Holy Spirit have any room at all. That's, a, that's exactly where the Pharisees were at. But the, the others are saying, well, we're of Peter. We're, they were saying, what we need is discipleship groups. Peter's the church government guy. We need discipleship groups. We need community. We need to restore elders and, and deacons and pastors, shepherds, teachers. We, need, we, uh, we, just, we need to get this thing organized with leadership and and we need discipling. And the others were like, oh, I'm not going to sink down to the mud of where you guys are. I'm of Christ. He's not commending them either. That's not the right answer in case you thought it was. They're saying, I don't need those other things. I'm, it, it's me and Jesus. That's what I need. I join a new church every year or two. I've never stayed seven or eight years to really in one church to really get some deep character. I'm always moving on. <laughs> you know, uh, that's what these people were saying. And I've got all these burdens, burdens for the lost and the hurting and to see God's word restored, whatever burden you have, uh, but you're really not putting it in a context to live it out. It's really not causing you to have to go to the cross. In fact, it, it tends to breed a, a kind of self-righteousness that judges other people who don't feel what you feel the, the, to the depth you feel. Been there, done that. Trust me, I, from my own failures, I know how that works. Now, Paul is saying that when the church is in this kind of state, that it is incredibly immature. That it needs milk and not solid food. This is why I argue that the 1 Corinthians letter is the most important letter to American Christianity of all. Because Corinth and America are so similar culturally, morally. They were, you know, Corinth was a, uh, a city of commerce and prosperity. And it was a city with high addiction rates and high promiscuity. Uh, it was a city where the church became divided. And let me tell you this. If, if you don't cry regularly and often over the state of the division of our of the churches in today you know the great schism of 1054 the reformation and some people depending on whether you're counting individual independent churches or what have you some some people will say there's around 6500 denominations today some people say 80,000 but they're counting every little uh Neighborhood churches is a different denomination if they're independent. But there's somewhere between uh, 3,500 and 6,000 denominations. And most of them say we be right. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to take five more minutes and I'm going to start in on what we're going to finish next week, which is, and frankly, if it takes me four weeks to do this, I'm going to look at 20 areas for restoration. Now, let me just say this, and I say this with a sad heart. It is not, it is not, not loving to challenge. We, we have this idea that all love is approbation, comfort, encouragement. Oh, yeah, you did really good there. You know, like, you know, the kid makes a swing and, and, in uh, at the ball and misses, so you say, "Good swing, good swing, good try." Now let's let's get it, and you know, 
Well, there's a place for that. But there's also a place to challenge us to, to, to be radical for Christ, to, to obey, to, to fall in line with his program. And what I've done here is I love God's church because it's through the church that he brings the kingdom. And the Bible says that the, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the sea. That is not an after Christ verse, Christ's second return verse. That's a before Christ's second turn, return verse. God is going to restore his church in such a way is that there's going to be valid uh, demonstrations of the body of Christ in every culture, every town, every village in the world. And the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. But a, a stepping stone to that must be that we have to, to discard every idea that's just modern views of the church and even our idea that we're just by the Bible alone without, if you say that, but you don't understand the power of paradigms, then you're embracing all sorts of paradigms and you think you're interpreting the Bible, but you're missing its message. Now, I'm going to say this, we must re-examine to rediscover in order to restore. Think about those words. I, I, that's if, if I'm thinking about changing it to, if, if, to that to be the slogan of our church, re-examining, to rediscover, to restore. The reason we need to study more and seek God and cry out to God is the Holy Spirit came to lead us and guide us in all the truth. For those of you who are fasters, I put that verse, Isaiah 58, 12, which talks about how uh, through fasting, one of the promises of fasting is that you'll be a restorer of the breach, a restorer of the ancient foundations. And it says those from among you, and really only the Amplified and Young's literal bring this out, but he's actually talking about your spiritual sons. Those who come out of your spiritual loins, your disciples will restore the ancient foundations. God has many things to restore to his church that are in the Bible that we're missing. And we want to raise spiritual sons and daughters in such a way that they go far beyond us. Believe me, since I've had uh, the pleasure of seeing two of my children go far beyond me in the things of the Lord, it's there's no greater joy than when one of your natural descendants also becomes one of your spiritual descendants. And when they pass you in the things of the Lord, it you know what, it's, that's just fine. All right. So here are, here are 20 things. I've got two more minutes, so I'll, we'll see if I can get. The first is called the Lord's Day in large group. Now, there are six Christian denominations or whatever who think that the, the Lord's Day is supposed to be on Saturday because that was the Sabbath and so forth. That's frankly erroneous. Uh, Jesus, all his appearances were on the first day of the week. He rose on the first day of the week. He appeared in the upper room to the disciples on the first day of the week, etc. Now that the, the Christians meeting early in the morning to take communion, recite creeds, and all the things we're going to talk about here was a well-established pattern from the very uh, first weeks after the resurrection. There was never a time when church Christians didn't meet on the first day of the week in a large group. All the Christians in a city came together together 
to do to worship and hear the word and take communion and all these things. Now, there's when we when you read First Corinthians twelve, it's one of the classic uh, chapters on a, a theological paradigm called the one and the many. God is one, and God comes to us in three persons. The body of Christ is one and it has many members. The one in the many is a theme all throughout scripture and it's through the balancing of one and many that you find truth. When you're studying theology, look for the one in the many. And the truth of the matter is, moving on to point B, is the early Christians, they met from house to house. And so you'll, you'll actually hear different groups will put these up one against the other. Oh, we're a house church movement. Well, the truth of the matter is, is from the beginning of, there was a, the whole church in a city would meet on the Lord's day. And that church had elders and deacons and, and government that God raised up, originally had apostles and prophets and so forth. But they met from house to house. If all you're getting out of this church is what we do on Sunday mornings, as Mr. T would say, I pity the fool. I hope the God you're breaking bread together during the week and you're worshiping and praying together and having Tuesday night Bible study for women and, and whatever else, uh, getting pastoral counsel behind the scenes and, you know, sitting on the back porch and getting chewed out by Pastor Greg or whatever. You're I hope all kinds of stuff like that are going on. But, the, but you need to be at Sunday school and you need to be at church as well. That's a minimum commitment to Christ. By the way, when it comes to Jerusalem, that's the last thing I'll say, and we'll talk about communion and the Lord's Supper next week. When it comes to, to this idea of house to house and worship and prayer behind it, we're going to look at the, how the church had daily prayer and, and uh, all, spiritual gifts were for everybody. We're going to look at lots of things that are going to add up to the idea of community but the New Testament church does not endorse communalism. Only one church practiced the selling of their property and the sharing of it in a communal way, and that was the church in Jerusalem, and that was because of what I preached about earlier. Jesus had already said that Jerusalem was to be destroyed, and it is a fact undeniable of church history that due to certain prophecies in 67 AD, the church said, now is the time to take heed to what the, we always knew the Olivet Discourse was about. All the Christians left Jerusalem in 67 AD, and it was very easy to lead because they were very poor. They owned no property. Communalism always leads to poverty. And that's why later in the New Testament, you see Paul and others taking up collections for the saints in Jerusalem because the saints in Jerusalem had become very, very poor because communism always leads to poverty, excessive poverty. And, uh, and God ordained that so that the saints in Jerusalem would have no stake in the society and they would move out. If you want to study the New Testament model for the church, study the church in Antioch and the churches that Paul planted on the basis of Antioch that you can study by reading all of Paul's letters. Amen.